0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the two-day White House Summit for Democracy beginning on Thursday at which 111 nations will meet virtually to discuss the health of democratic governance and the need to bolster global democracies under attack from authoritarian and kleptocratic encroachment. Joining us is Laura Thornton director and senior fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund, who previously was director of global programs at the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, where she managed multiple teams across Europe focused on constitution building, parliamentary process, elections, gender and inclusion, political parties and democracy assessment and analysis. We'll discuss her op-ed at the Washington Post, why international election observers would give Wisconsin a failing grade and the need for the United States to get its own democratic house in order as massive and multi-layered voter suppression by Trump's GOP casts doubt on whether Republicans believe in democracy anymore, opening up the possibility that 240 years of American democracy could end just like the Soviet Union did. Then we'll get an analysis of the virtual summit today between Presidents Biden and Putin and speak with Daniel Treisman, a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Center for Advanced Study of the Behavioral Sciences, and a professor of political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, and a leading specialist on the politics and economics of post-communist Russia. He's the author of a number of books on Russia, most recently, The New Autocracy, information, politics and policy in Putin's Russia, and we will discuss the urgent need to revive diplomacy around the Minsk agreement between Russia and Ukraine. Then finally, we will assess the chances of success for Donald Trump's social media startup, the Trump Media and Technology Group, already under investigation by the SEC, and the announcement today that a dairy farmer and Trump loyalist, Congressman Devin Nunes, will be its CEO. Joining us is Jared Holt, a resident fellow at the Atlantic Council Digital Forensic Research Lab, who previously tracked and provided analysis on fringe media for Media Matters for America. He specializes in alt-right and so-called new-right media, in addition to the larger culture and influence of right-wing social media. And joining us now is Laura Thornton, who's Director and Senior Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. Previously she was Director of Global Programs at the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, where she managed multiple teams across Europe focused on constitution building, parliamentary process, elections, gender and inclusion, political parties and democracy assessment and analysis. And she has an op-ed at the Washington Post, Why International Election Observers Would Give Wisconsin a Failing grade. Welcome to Background Briefing, Laura Thornton.
1: It is a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, tomorrow, Thursday, the White House is convening a summit uh, for democracy with 110 nations joining in. There's some criticism of some of the countries like Pakistan and the Philippines with a dubious democratic record, particularly of late, but I guess there are still some real politics considerations going on here. How do you think that the White House has managed navigating this inclusion-exclusion process?
1: Yes, I thought it was uh, sort of a strange um, decision. Because initially when we heard about the Summit for Democracy, it was actually called Summit of Democracies. And then they switched it to Summit for Democracy. And I saw that as a good sign because, in my view, it should be around not nation states, but around the ideas. So, by making it a summit of different, you know, executives and leaders of different countries, you by definition are getting into this who's in the club, who's out of the club, uh, which could have been avoided if you had a summit of Democrats, lowercase d, in which case you could invite. Democrats from even very undemocratic places, and you could, you know, rally around the concepts and ideas and how we can bolster democracy rather than getting into this, this, you know, who's in, who's out, which just is problematic. And as you pointed out, I mean, the criteria are completely inconsistent. You have an authoritarian regime like Congo DRC was invited, but Bolivia, which is like a mid-performing democracy, was not. So You know, and of course we know that there are perhaps you know, different considerations taking place, like in the case of Pakistan or even India, which is, I would say, a backsliding democracy, Philippines, et cetera, um, which I just think is something that could have been avoided. I think the summit would have been much more fruitful as a a platform for activists, for civil society leaders, for political opposition uh, to get together and really think about what we can do to stop the rise of authoritarianism, which is taking place almost everywhere.
0: When you mentioned backsliding, a recent report out of Sweden, looking at the health of international democracies, found that the United States was backsliding.
1: Yeah. And that's my former employer, International Ideas. So I helped design the methodology for that report. But indeed, America is. and And it had been sort of backsliding in our in those idea reports for a few years now. But of course, um, you know, under the Trump administration, that just became worse, particularly with regard to checks and balances and um, exercise of oversight of our legislative branch.
0: So the piece that you wrote in the Washington Post about, well, at least the picture captioned was of Ron Johnson, the senator, who's an, <laughs> a pretty strange character to begin with. I mean, he... Used Kremlin talking points to attack the Mueller investigation, etc. It's hard to understand exactly what makes him tick, but his kind of anti democratic, almost casual anti democratic attitudes, are now metastasized into the GOP itself. And I'm interested at a sort of psychological level without getting into amber amb- psychiatrics. Why do these American politicians who often use the sort of hackneyed phrase of we're the greatest democracy on the world and America first and America the best and all this stuff. At the same time, they just absolutely seem to have a complete disregard for democracy because at every level now, there's a multi-level effort underway to, in effect, become a one-party state. The amount of gerrymandering that's going on already would indicate Mm -hmm. that the Republicans could win the House in 2022 before one vote is cast. And then on election day, there's massive amounts of voter suppression built into all kinds of elections around the country in various states. Various Republican states are now able to count and certify the vote, and if they don't like it, they can overturn it. And at the precinct level, there's a concerted campaign underway led by Steve Bannon and others to harass normally independent poll workers who are quitting in droves and being replaced Mm -hmm. by the kind of partisan conspiracy theorist type cyber ninjas that we saw in Arizona. Mm -hmm. So the landscape is pretty appalling, and there's a very disturbing cover article in The Current Atlantic by Barton Gelman, Trump's next coup has already begun, January 6th was practiced. Donald Trump's GOP is much better positioned to subvert the next election. So this is a long-winded way of saying, Laura, we have some serious problems here at home. (laughs) We certainly
1: do. And I think you laid out some of the most significant challenges. And I've always been sort of not I guess, baffled by that disconnect, because I, in terms of how we view things overseas versus how we th- view things at home, and, and I'm just in a unique position, having just moved back to the United States after 25 years. And I've been overseas on missions with, you know, Republican Congress people or their staff on different, you know, CODELs or different election observation missions. And and there, they've always, there's been no difference between sort of representatives from the Democratic Party or representatives from the Republican Party when we're talking about democracy elsewhere. There's a lot of head nodding and and, you know, pushing other countries about, like, for example, how they draw their districts. I've been in that conversation where I've seen representatives from our Congress on both sides of the aisle push a foreign uh, government about you know, bias in the way they're drawing constituencies or about the fact that their legislature is designed in a way that doesn't deliver majority rule and and just these basics. And then yet, like you pointed out very well, when all of a sudden that just flies out the window when we come back to the United States, Uh, because I guess my my presumption is that the desire to keep power is more important than democratic values. But I also think that we have, you know, it, it is certainly the behavior on the part of certain leaders in the party, um, but also a problem of the demand and the public. Uh, what, what, what is, you know, why are we voting for people that do this? And that is a, like a sort of a longer-term problem that I've always been, that we at ASD have been struggling to how to how to address. Like, how do we build resilient communities that believe in democracy and that push back against these efforts and that are discerning about the information they consume. Uh, And in that regard, we have a long way to go, um, I'm afraid.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Laura Thornton, who's Director and Senior Fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy at the German Marshall Fund. Previously, she was Director of Global Programs at the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance, where she managed multiple teams across Europe, focused on constitution building, the parliamentary process, elections, gender and inclusion, political parties and democracy assessment and analysis. And she has an op-ed at the Washington Post, Why International Election Observers Would Give Wisconsin. A failing grade. And it was a very peculiar thing that happened uh, on January the, the, the 7th. The 6th sort of went into the 7th because mm-hmm. when the Capitol was attacked and they were trying to hang Mike Pence and he was whisked out of their place, we know that eventually the coup failed, the insurrection failed, and Vice President Pence came back to the podium and said, Let's get to work. And they certified the vote. And there was obviously a lots of you know shell shocked lawmakers there. They, their lives had just been threatened, and their the citadel of democracy had been sacked and desecrated and defecated. And yet there were speeches there from Kevin McCarthy, holding uh-huh. Trump accountable, literally on the on that morning of the seventh. But then shortly thereafter, the tone changed within that very moment, where. McCarthy and other Republicans, including the other two leaders, Scalise and Stefanik, they both started to talk about election irregularities. And then by the time that they took the vote, 147 Republicans voted against certifying the election Mm -hmm. in spite of what had just happened. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to figure out what happened in that moment between the outrage at what had happened and holding Trump culpable and then shortly thereafter deciding that there was a problem with the election when, in fact, there wasn't a problem. And there isn't a problem, but that's metastasized into this whole stop the steal thing. And here we have, what, 70%, 68% of Republicans believing that President Biden is an illegitimate leader?
1: It is. It's extraordinary. And um, and the speed with which that reversal came into effect was was sort of, Surprising for me, of course, and for all of us, but also now just the rewriting of the events. So, you know, just this denialism about what happened. Um, you know, now they're just tourists or <laughs> whatever. Uh, and and again, I mean, the only sort of explanation that one can come to is that they they feel that the pathway to po- power. Um, is with Trump. And, you know, and the belief that the election was stolen is something that rallies his supporters. And those who dare to step away from that, like Adam Kitzinger or Liz Cheney, they're, they cannot be part of the party anymore. It's the litmus test. So um, and that's a very scary thing for our democracy. And we see, of course, how the role that uh, the lack of information integrity in our country is playing in this. And I mean, we focus a lot on platforms and social media, which, which certainly are a tremendous problem, which I, I've talked about ad nauseum in other fora, but uh, it's also obviously our cable news and being fed, uh, you know, a regular diet of of lies. And I think it's it's going to be something that I mean, we're not free of this. The whole I lost, ergo, it was fraud is the new black, right? So and we've also conveniently exported that elsewhere. So, you know, shortly after we have the junta in Myanmar saying the same thing when they lost an election, Bibi Netanyahu gave it a go. It didn't work. Um, But I imagine that, you know, losing parties everywhere are just going to throw up the mantle of it was fraud, it was fraud. And so now we face the problem of building trust in our elections, which frankly is somewhat new to us. I mean, we had the whole hanging chads in Florida, which was a mess, but mostly Americans have trusted the outcomes of elections. Uh, and this is, so this is a new sort of reality that we have to deal with. And then also, like you had mentioned earlier, how this translates into the security of election officials. Um, you know, like you said, they're they're quitting, they're leaving. Uh, why should they? They're mostly volunteers. <laughs> they're just trying to do their civic duty, and they're getting death threats. Uh, and another thing that I think that you know we're not very used to in the United States is having a robust election observation ecosystem. In every country I've worked, that's a very big part of elections. You have domestic observer organizations that are both nonpartisan as well as the partisan observers. And there's a whole global community of best practice about how you go about doing that. There are codes of conduct. What does it look like? What can you do and what can't you do? There are declarations of principles for observers. And the United States has been just completely outside of that. And uh, you know we're pretty hostile towards international observers. Uh, ODEER, OSCE, ODIHR has you know tried to make efforts to observe elections here, uh, with some limited success. But it's not really a part of our our sort of history or framework. But maybe it should be. Um, and it's something I've been I've been thinking about with my organization is how to build out sort of uh, neutral, nonpartisan election observation. Um, but, yeah, building trust is going to be the big challenge in the midterms and 2024.
0: Well, the U.S. is going in the in the opposite direction, at least the state of Texas, which the DOJ just announced mm-hmm. yesterday they're suing. In part, they're suing over the fact that these new Texas gerrymandering, laws— Gerrymandering. Yeah. laws are, are also allowing so-called partisan election observers who have the ability to intimidate voters. Uh, Absolutely. So— And it was what
1: Trump had called on in his debate, if you recall, where he was like, come, you know, like basically storm the polling station. And I had written about it at the time that that that's not election. I mean, I don't need to tell you that that's not what election observation is. And partisan election observation is a really important thing. I'm not saying there shouldn't be Republican observers, but their role is not to harass and intimidate. That's actually against.
0: Right, and telly, the, law, telling telling yeah. the the proud boys to stand back, to stand down, exactly. back, stand, stand back. By, I mean, yeah, my God, it. it's pretty and that's, clear.
1: That, that's very frightening. And you know, election officials, hardworking people across the country, you can't blame them for you know not wanting to get involved. Particularly in like concealed carry states, you really you really want to put yourself in that situation.
0: You know, it's 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 a travesty. Well, but that puts us on the level of these third world dictatorships, doesn't it? With these guys strutting around with assault rifles. What's the difference between them and some militia aligned to a warlord?
1: Well, I'll tell you, I mean, it is, I haven't even really seen that. And I've observed elections in a lot of places. And first of all, moving back to the United States in general, the the whole gun thing is, is one of the most jarring for my family. Um, but, you know, even in countries that were sort of conflict ridden where I've observed elections, I, I've observed them in Gaza and the Southern Philippines. And, you know, I, you, you, you at least have a legal system that doesn't allow people to bring guns to polling stations. Not that that didn't happen. It sure did. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like, like, what are we talking about? Um, I have been in a polling station that was raided before by armed, uh, protesters. It all turned out okay. But yeah, I just never thought that I'd come back to the United States and have that be like a real prospect. But you know, there are many things that I'm finding. The, the, the thing that you said at the outset, that, and I wrote about in my op-ed, the brazenness is also just really astonishing to me because I've worked in different places that are even full-on non-democracies, but mostly they try to pretend they are. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. mostly they at least try to say that they're not doing what they're doing. No, in fact,
0: Putin has has perfected that, the patina of legitimacy of of democracy.
1: Absolutely. So you wonder why the
0: Republicans are being so brazen. You know, they obviously have been borrowing. Because they can. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs>
1: because well, but then the, I mean that's what's so fascinating
0: yeah but that leads you to question what's going on with the Democrats then. I mean their hair should be on fire and I don't know what it is 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 it the fact that Joe Biden spent most of his career dealing with sensible and reasonable Republicans but these are no longer the Republicans in Trump's GOP as you pointed out you know people like Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger get purged yeah I, I
1: don't I, it's it's hard for me to know what Democrats can do. Yeah, I, I think there is a sort of a body of thought of you know why are you treating them with this whole you know master of the Senate position of 40 years ago when it's not that today. Um, and how hard do you push back on on the behaviors of you know Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Bobart? Who's, who's 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 you know how how much do you do you push back on that? Um, and and how much do you engage in a party that, that not all members of the party, but where elements are anti-democratic? And I don't have a good answer. I mean, of course, the legislation, any legislation on democratic reform or election reform has not gone well. Um, and I don't see much hope for for that to pass at that level. So it is a really difficult position for I think the Democrats to be in. Um, I mean, uh, and and they're not perfect too. Certainly, gerrymandering is not something that is exclusively in the hands of the GOP. Uh, so yeah, it's, it, is a, it is. It is. It does put the Democrats in an interesting position, and I'm not sure there's a real clear pathway forward for them to address these issues. But I think giving up on we can't, nevertheless, can't give up on democratic reform. I mean, there's so many changes that need to be made and, you know, at least trying to peel back parts maybe of the election legislation that failed to see if there's any possibility of getting common ground or maybe convincing Manchin and Cinema that they can push forward with it. I don't know, but, um, I do fear that we're going to lose our, our chance to pass democracy reform, uh, Because the midterms, as you said, look like a foregone conclusion in the House, at least.
0: So just in closing then, Laura, given uh, the conclusion of your op-ed at the Washington Post, why international election observers would give Wisconsin a failing grade. You say Mm -hmm. apathy is how democracies die. I've seen it. And Americans need to start caring about democracy enough to act on it. And you cite the example of the brave young activists in Hong Kong up against the power of the Chinese Communist Party. So... If the Democrats and Biden and the leaders of the party can't make the threat to American democracy itself a centerpiece of their political arguments, and they're obviously dealing with stimulus packages and other things, they may be, and it would seem to me that this is existential that they're facing, and that they, this should be their central theme. So, it, short of them inspiring their own party, I guess what you're arguing is Americans themselves have just got to step up. Is that what you feel?
1: Well, I do feel that. And I and I've I felt that in other countries too. And I, I've seen the looks on people's faces when I say that because it's like you expect us to, to, to do this. We don't know what to do. And it's horrible. And I'm not saying it's easy. And, and Hong Kong example is a perfect example of how it's not easy or Belarus where I'm not comparing the US to Belarus, don't misunderstand, but just citizen activism doesn't always work. But I do think that Americans have gotten sort of, I don't know, just we've ridden by on our laurels. We just have this presumption of democracy. We just assume that institutions will hold and even point to the fact that January 6th didn't end up in a actual coup. Um, Oh, it held and look it's it's all fine and and in my view, it's like well, no, it like literally just because a few um officials in Georgia had some code of ethics, that, I mean, it was like by this by a string that we held together um, but you know, I don't know if it's just our culture today, our short attention span, um also, the information that we consume, of course plays a role, but I do believe that the only answer is civic organizing at this point. And that includes, you know, the advocacy and pressure on the democratic party to make this a priority, because certainly in my view, if you don't get the sort of the democracy infrastructure, right, your other goals can't be accomplished. And we're seeing the results of that. Um, So you need to get your house in order before you start talking about, you know, your legislative agenda. Um, And yeah. And I think that therefore it's a, it's, we need to be pressuring, our democratic lawmakers as well as our Republican lawmakers to sort of value democracy. And I think a lot of it will have to happen at the local level, particularly with elections being, as you rightly pointed out, you know, very decentralized in the United States. So, you know, I I have seen Americans act as have you, you know, we, we do have a, a history of activism and mobilization and, and it has yielded in results in the past. So I think we just need to get the sort of inspiration here. And, and I get perhaps, you know gerrymandering isn't as exciting as you know fighting for other rights that we fought for in the past but we have to translate that into sort of the bread and butter issues that people care about like why does gerrymandering matter for your checkbook why is this important to your daily life um and i think that we need to do a better job at at making those links
0: well, we also, we've we also, just in closing, we also have to stand up against thuggery. I mean, that's what this Absolutely. White House meeting's about, in effect. These people are thugs and kleptocrats and murderers, and I'm not suggesting the Republicans have reached that point, but there is a lot of thuggery involved with Bannon, and now you see the contempt with which Mark Meadows has now decided mm-hmm. no, to no longer cooperate with the January 6th investigation by the House. That's brazen contempt. I mean... Somebody's got to pull these people over. I think they think the Democrats are just a bunch of pussies.
1: <laughs> well, and I hope that they do, you know, deliver those uh, contempt of court. I mean, I hope they keep moving on that um, right. because I agree with you 100 percent. If they're not, if there's no accountability, then which we proved during the Trump administration, um, you know, that we're not going to use all levers in our control to bring people into accountability then
0: yeah then we're sunk. <laughs> well Laura let's not end on the note that we're sunk but that we have got to stand up and I thank you for joining us. Exactly. Oh
1: thank you so much for having
0: me. And again I've been speaking with Laura Thornton who's a director and senior fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy of the German Marshall Fund. Previously she was director of global programs at the International Institute For Democracy and Electoral Assistance, where she managed multiple teams across Europe focused on constitution building, parliamentary process, elections, gender and inclusion, political parties, and democracy assessment and analysis. And she has an op ed at the Washington Post why international election observers would give Wisconsin a failing grade. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an analysis of the virtual summit today between Presidents Biden and Putin.
2: I give you power I can take it away I can take it away
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Daniel Treisman, who is a fellow at Stanford University Center for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Sciences and a professor of political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, and a leading specialist on the politics and economics of post-communist Russia. He's the author of a number of books on Russia, most recently, The New Autocracy, Information, Politics, and Policy in Putin's Russia. Welcome to Background Briefing, Daniel Treisman. Thank you. So what did you make of the summit, virtual summit today between Biden and President Putin? It was, according to Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, it was a lot of give and take, no grandstanding, no speeches. Um, They got a lot done. So I'm not sure what they got done, but what do you think happened?
3: Right. Well, they did talk for about two hours and uh, the readout from the White House was only one paragraph. So uh, if they uh, covered a lot of ground and they certainly uh, suggested that they were planning to, uh, they're not telling us exactly what came out of it. They had the White House had made it very clear beforehand uh, that Biden was going to go in and uh, explain in detail uh, all the uh, unpleasant things that uh, the US would do if uh, Russian troops invaded Ukraine at this point. This was supposed to be uh, a call to deter Putin from uh, taking any uh, aggressive actions uh, on the Ukrainian border. Of course, uh, the White House has said they did, in fact, that Biden did, in fact, uh, explain this. There's a slightly different take coming from the Russian side, so the Russian news uh, first of all, downplayed uh, the whole thing. It was uh, only item three or four on the nightly news, and they showed uh, shots of uh, uh, Putin welcoming Biden at the beginning of the call, uh, friendly atmosphere. Uh, later on, of course, they show they uh, pointed out uh, that uh, in the Russian view, uh, it's in fact the U.S. that's been acting aggressively. Sending advanced weapons to Ukraine, uh, doing naval drills in the Black Sea, and uh, it, even continuing to talk about the possibility of, uh, of admitting Ukraine to NATO. Uh, so uh, that was the Russian, the Russian side, and uh, and uh, they lowered expectations that anything major was going to come from the talk. Of course, uh, it does once again show. Putin in a favorable light as a world statesman uh, who's taken seriously by the, uh, uh, by the, the world's leading superpower in the U.S.
0: But talk of Ukraine joining NATO, which is apparently what Putin's red line is, that's just coming mostly from Putin. So he sort of has it in his head that somehow the, the Western powers in the U.S. are trying to encourage Ukraine to join NATO, As far as I know, they're actually just discouraging them, or they're keeping them at arm's length. So if Putin's whole military build-up and his whole propaganda offensive is based on the idea that Ukraine is about to join NATO, which is not true, then why is he doing this? Is he doing this to bolster his position domestically? And could he really think he could get away with another little war like he did, which was so successful in seizing Crimea. Clearly, this next time around it wouldn't be quite as bloodless.
3: Right. Well, uh, on the NATO issue, he has said that he would like the U.S. to commit. He would like NATO to commit not to admit uh, Ukraine and Georgia. So he'd like some kind of uh, guarantee given. And uh, what ends up happening is... The Russians ask for this, and NATO insists that it will not give such a commitment, uh, that the doors of NATO are always open, uh, that even if there's no immediate plan to admit uh, Ukraine, uh, they're not going to say never. Um, And and that has the effect of suggesting to the Russians that uh, it's a real possibility, maybe not tomorrow, but sometime in the future. Meanwhile, uh, there's a lot of U.S. and uh, and NATO support for Ukraine, which, again, is is uh, stimulated in part by the aggressive stance of Russia and the Russian attempts to destabilize Ukraine in various ways. Um, but so, uh, it's very hard to tell how seriously uh, the Russians take the danger of uh, an eventual Ukrainian admission to to NATO. I think at the time of Crimea, uh, they were concerned about the possibility of Ukraine canceling the lease over the naval base at Sevastopol, uh, which uh, at that time, Russia was leasing uh, in order to stay it to, uh, to house its uh, part of its Black Sea fleet. Um, I don't think they were really worried about an imminent admission of Ukraine to NATO. Of course, that takes years. and. NATO had not provided a membership action plan, which is the initial step down that path. On the other hand, Western leaders have continually uh, said things uh, along the lines that uh, we anticipate that one day Ukraine will be part of NATO. You know, Biden has said that himself in the past and various other politicians have said it. So there are. uh, There are hints uh, at, uh, that this is part of the Western intention in the long run. So that's, it's possible that they're reacting to that. I think there's another possibility, uh, which is that, uh, Putin may have thought, uh, that the Ukrainians might be planning an offensive to take back at least some of the Donbass, the the Eastern region, which has been in essence controlled by separatists for the last few years there was a flare up in in the conflict there, uh, which occurred because the Ukrainians have obtained some relatively sophisticated Turkish drones. And in November, uh, they used one of these drones to take out a artillery piece on the side of the the pro Russian separatists. Uh, And that was a, uh, a use of uh, a type of weaponry that hadn't, hadn't occurred before. Uh, The Russians reacted very strongly to that, and uh, it's possible that they see that these drones as kind of a game changer, that it would provide the kind of air cover that might enable uh, Ukrainian forces. And remember, the Ukrainian army is now in much better shape than it was back at the time of Crimea. might enable the Ukrainian forces to go in and try and take back some territory. So it's possible that, that that's part of the thinking. Uh, in uh, in Moscow. But it's also possible that this is kind of bluff and bargain. Uh, you know, in April, uh, they put 100,000 troops on the border, and Putin got a summit with Biden out of that. So it's possible that he's trying again, trying to get something else uh, as a kind of payoff for removing the troops and uh, and calming things down.
0: So. The, the real measure of success, though, of, a, of of this virtual summit would be some kind of peace deal or some de-escalation deal, and there's nothing being said about that. And as far as I can tell, the only mechanism that exists is the Minsk Agreement, which was pretty one-sided in 2015, but at least it's an agreement that neither the Ukrainian or the Russian side has really stuck to. So is there a framework to de-escalate? Because... You know the idea of any kind of war is a hideous prospect, particularly if it could involve you know proxies like NATO and the US getting embroiled in it.
3: Right. I think the only the only framework remains the the Minsk treaty process. Uh, there've been ongoing meetings in what's called the Norman format, which is meetings of the Ukrainian authorities, representatives of the separatists, and uh, France and Germany, uh, there was some suggestion that uh, perhaps the U.S. could become uh, a formal part of those negotiations. Uh, I think the Russians are not enthusiastic about that. So uh, I don't think there's any immediate prospect for some new uh, framework or format for negotiations. Uh, The positions of of both Russia and the U.S. remain that uh, the Minsk agreements need to be implemented and Russia has made clear, Putin has made clear that uh, they want uh, Biden, they want the U.S. to put more pressure on Kiev to fulfill its part.
0: And Biden's meeting Thursday at the White House with President Zelensky, who's definitely taken a dip in the popularity, particularly since the Pandora Papers found that he's got $43 million stashed abroad that are a particularly noxious oligarch, gave him?
3: Yeah, so Zelensky is is, uh, relatively weak. He's still more popular than any other politicians in Kiev. It's very difficult to uh, maintain popularity in a country which is being uh, covertly undermined, or not even very covertly undermined, by uh, a powerful neighbor. Uh, It's very difficult to, to Repair the economy to to stimulate growth when interest rates are very high because of the risk premium. Nobody wants to invest in a country which uh, is under military threat uh, from the east. So and of course, there are lots of domestic issues which are just very hard to tackle like corruption. And uh, as you say, uh, it's not uh, clear that Zelensky is is completely untouched by that. So, yes, he's he's not in a strong position. Uh, at the same time, there's no other politician who's, who's more popular, and uh, he is trying to manage a very difficult situation, and uh, he desperately needs uh, continuing support from the U.S. Uh, of all kinds and continuing support uh, from NATO and uh, from,
0: from Europe. Well, what's your guess then? Just in closing, uh, Daniel, will there be a diplomatic initiative coming out of this. You you mentioned that the last time there was a build-up on the Ukrainian border, and in fact, Russia went on full nuclear alert, which certainly got the attention of the U.S., uh, and then later Putin and Biden met in Geneva. So what's your expectation? Because at the beginning of the summit, the virtual summit today, when they were being nice to each other and the bit that they played on Russian television... Biden did say, "I'm," you know, I guess it, it was a bit of a dig at him. He said, I'm sorry to miss you at the G20, but I hope we can meet in person soon.
3: Right. Well, Biden seems very committed. He, Biden is very committed to uh, dialogue, to keeping uh, the lines of communication open. Um, I doubt that there's going to be another summit anytime soon. But I, I expect when there are summits, uh, multilateral summits, Multilateral meetings, uh, that, that Putin and, and Biden will will meet, but I don't really expect anything major to come out from this. Uh, come out of this phone call, it was, uh, I think, an effort on the U.S. part to express very strongly the nature of the sanctions. Well, to explain the sanctions that were planned and to express strongly the commitment uh, to Ukraine. Whether that will work is another question. Uh, and on the Russian side, of course, it uh, shows that Putin is taken seriously uh, by the West, uh, and that is useful for domestic uh, domestic politics, domestic consumption. Um, but I don't think there's uh, there's really much we can anticipate in the way of concrete uh, changes in the situation regarding Ukraine. Um, so, and I don't think anybody really expected that. So it's a, a measure which could lower the temperature a little bit, but we we're left in the same position essentially. There are these hundred thousand troops on on the Ukrainian border. There's this intelligence that suggests that they're uh, doing everything necessary, if they were everything that could be needed, if they were planning uh, a military incursion into uh, Ukraine. We don't ultimately know what they're planning. Putin, obviously, part of his his aim is to keep us guessing, and uh, he's succeeding.
0: Well, Daniel Treisman, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Daniel Treisman, who is a visiting fellow at Stanford University Center for Advanced Studies in the Behavioral Sciences. He's also a professor of political science at the University of California, Los Angeles, and a research associate of the National Bureau of Economic Research, and a leading specialist on the politics and economics of post-communist Russia. And his most recent book is The New Autocracy, Information, Politics, and Policy in Putin's Russia. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an assessment of the chances of success of Donald Trump's social media startup, the Trump Media and Technology Group, already under investigation by the C- SEC, and the announcement today that a dairy farmer and Trump loyalist, Congressman Devin Nunes, will be its CEO. From
2: Russia with love. I fly to you Much wiser Since my goodbye
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jared Holt, who's a resident fellow at the Atlantic Council Digital Forensic Research Lab, who previously tracked and provided analysis on fringe media for Media Matters of America. He specializes in alt-right and so-called new-right media, in addition to the larger culture and influence of right-wing social media. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jared Holt.
4: Thanks for having me, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Jared. And the Trump Media and Technology Group that's being formed, now they've announced that Devin Nunez, the congressman from a dairy farmer from Central California, has uh, resigned from Congress. He will do so at the end of the month to join this company, but already the special purpose acquisition company that plans to merge with Trump's company is being investigated by the Securities and Exchange Commission. Uh, This is the Digital World Acquisition Corp. Then the SEC wants information about the lead up to the deal with the Trump Media and Technology Group. So I guess in a way, there's nothing new there, right? Trump's, (laughs) his operations are always shady, and this one's already being investigated.
4: So yeah, I mean, we can't really say it's so unique Um, when Digital World Acquisition Corp came into the mix, which is the uh, SPAC, which is a business term that I don't know a ton about. uh, But, you know, this kind of financial vehicle to carry these, you know, supposedly incoming operations, including a, you know, Trump centric social media platform. It just reeked of like yet another Trump scam. It, It felt like the Trump stakes, but on the internet. So
0: is, of course, he's a propagandist, he's a completely loyal cult follower of Trump and he never used to be that way apparently. Uh, he was relatively sane, at least thought to be, but then something happened to him and particularly when he was in charge of the House Intelligence Committee, he was absolutely devoted to Trump and would do anything he could to discredit the Mueller investigation. And his protégés, of course, have lived on through the Trump administration, Ezra Cohen-Watnick and Kash Patel, and were promoted into very high positions. And may well have something to do with why the Pentagon didn't move to stop the insurrection on January the 6th. On January the 4th, two days before the insurrection, Trump awarded Devin Nunes the Medal of Freedom. Of course, then he instigated the insurrection, and then that very night, After the certification vote happened, then suddenly Nunes is one of 147 Republican House members who vote against certifying Biden's victory, in spite of the fact that they they just had the Capitol stormed. So nobody quite knows what happened to this guy. Do, Do you have any insight into why he suddenly became such an
4: ardent Trumpster? Uh, you know, I, I can't read his mind, so I'm not entirely sure why this began, but I, you know, my theory is that like so many other uh, GOP members during the Trump era, they found it very expedient for themselves, uh, both personally and politically, to throw as much of their weight behind Trump as possible. Um, and at a certain point, the GOP base, I think, Kind of demanded it um, to show that you were kind of in on the plan, uh, so it were. But you know, we see a lot of folks like this. You think of people like Matt Gates or or people like Marjorie Taylor Greene that came in almost explicitly to do this, which is, you know, these members of Congress almost, you know, kind of pivoting from lawmaking in the traditional sense. And trying instead to become almost like these media figures or pundits or social media, uh, you know, what would you call it, an influencer, something like that.
0: And again, I'm speaking with Jared Holt, who is a resident fellow at the Atlantic Council Digital Forensic Research Lab, who previously tracked and provided analysis on fringe media for media matters for America. He specializes in alt-right and so-called new-right media, in addition to the larger culture and influence of right wing social media? Well, there's some questions in the press about why Nunez made this move because if, and a lot of people think it's pretty much a question of when, the Republicans take back the House, Nunez would be poised to be the chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, which is a hugely influential position where money just, lobbyist money just gets thrown at you and you end up, if you want to become a, lo- a lobbyist, you end up. With enormous war chest. But on the other hand, perhaps Jared, the reason he uh, has quit to join Trump, and that has its hazards because if you work for Trump, you either get indicted or get screwed. Uh, that's the track record. And if the company fails, of course, guess who's going to get blamed? But apparently, the redistrict in California is such that Nunez probably wouldn't get reelected at any rate. So I can see why. Uh, Perhaps he made this move. What do you think?
4: Yeah, I think that's a pretty good theory. I didn't know the part about the redistricting, but that certainly is something that politicians care about a ton. And if the political window for uh, Nunez was closing, I can definitely see him making this kind of move. And, you know, like any other move to a, a Trump entity, I'm sure there was all kinds of promise of influence and uh, financial gain, and simply by being in, near the former president. Um, I, I'm sure he'll also be approached by different outside interest groups and be able to enrich himself and, and the like. But something I think is kind of interesting about this whole kind of you know si- situation that Nunez is in right now, and, and the Digital World Acquisition Corp is in right now, is it seems that you know, assuming Nunez is coming on to work at least in part in this social media project uh, that is supposedly launching sometime next year, it it is kind of just following the same playbook for failure that so many of these other alternative platforms have uh, found themselves undone by, which is instead of bringing in people to this company that uh, you know would have competence in the tech space or or you know track records on. Uh, companies like this or operations like this and they bring in these kind of ideological loyalists to the vision of the project and instead of bringing people with competence into it so to me right. like like if i'm thinking of what the future is and what you know what we have at this point is just vague promises from uh this this trump business entity the the newest one i It doesn't speak well to me, at least looking forward on the long term success of this project. I think that, you know, Trump and his circle will have some degree of success attracting uh, people to whatever new platform they launch just because of who Trump is and how much space he occupied in the American mind for uh, four or five years. But. the question is, will it sustain itself? And if there isn't like a core competence built into the project, and it's just, you know, former members of Congress or former aides that, uh, you know, their qualification is undying loyalty to Trump, the project kind of seems almost doomed to fail from the start.
0: Sure. And and Nunez is a dairy farmer. So he's not exactly a tech savvy guy. But what do you think is going to happen then to this $1 billion of committed capital to Trump's organization and DWAC uh, saying they have? That's what the SEC is looking into, I guess. It's not inconceivable that this could be foreign money. This could be Russian money.
4: No, it, it's not. Uh, you know, we don't know a lot about that money right now. And Because it's a business, uh, I don't think they're really required to disclose it either. Um, You know, if they do end up investigated, that might be information that comes out of an investigation like that. Um, But, you know, it it certainly could very well end up being a vehicle for different influence uh, campaigns, whether foreign or domestic. You know, anything from uh, speaking of Nunez, the dairy lobby uh, to, you know, Ukrainian real estate interest, you know, could potentially view that as a place to try to exert some influence via their dollars. Um, And, you know, but as far as like what happens to that billion dollars, it kind of still is unclear to me. My hunch is that, you know, like every other business Trump has run, that this money will kind of seem to evaporate its way into Trump's pockets somehow. Uh, and, you know, ultimately the business will kind of fracture at some point and and weaken at some point.
0: Well, you mentioned Ukraine. Nunes involved himself in in this the first impeachment or the reasons behind the first impeachment of Trump. And he, he met apparently with this Viktor Shokin, this corrupt Ukrainian prosecutor uh, who made up all this nonsense that Rudy Giuliani and Lev Parnas ran with. So what can they do just in the last couple of minutes here in in this social media space that they're trying to take on Facebook and Twitter? Good luck with that.
4: Yeah, I mean, good luck with that. Where almost all of these alternative social media platforms fail is their functionality. The fact is that Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, the kind of sites that we use all the time spend enormous sums of money and have enormous teams of incredibly talented user design uh you know back-end design and you know make these products into something that is often a very kind of seamless easy experience uh that's the business right and you know even with a billion dollars even if that figure is totally legit the the government investigates, finds nothing is fishy here after all. I still don't know if that's enough money to get something off the ground that is going to be able to compete at the scale with something like Facebook. I think their best hope is to try to attract Trump supporters into one central place and extract data out of it. Um, And you know, I'm not sure what the law would be here, because I don't know if there's really a precedent for it, but I imagine they would then try to turn around and sell that data to Republican campaigns or if Trump runs again in 2024, which every indication seems to be pointing towards that he will at least try to. uh, That data of all his supporters posting on this website could very well kind of find its way back into a, you know, Trump campaign scenario and be used to mobilize and target and, uh, you know, further agitate his own base.
0: Well, Jared I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Jared Holt, who's a resident fellow at the Atlantic Council Digital Forensics Research Lab, who previously tracked and provided an analysis on fringe media for Media Matters for America, and he specializes in alt-right and so-called new right media, in addition to the larger culture and influence of right-wing social media. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters. I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon, and this program is available for podcasting at backgroundbriefing.org, where you can sign up for our email updates as well as subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you like this program, you can help us reach more listeners by taking a moment to rate and review us on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share the program with friends and family and colleagues on Twitter and Facebook. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.
2: The Hitler.